0: challenging you to ask the question, God, if I could get my priorities and values lined up with your priorities and values, God, what could you use me to do? What could you use me to accomplish? God, who would you use me to reach? Who would you like to use me to impact? The problem is this, as soon as we begin to dream that way, because, you know, we walk out of here, wall all jacked up, God's going to use me. As soon as we begin to dream about the possibilities, our dreaming is quickly cut short, right? Because we're reminded, oh yeah, my past, my failings, my inadequacies. Are we reminded of all the gifts and the abilities and talents that we don't possess and we quickly decide that our dream could never become a reality. God could never really do anything through my life. God could never really use me greatly. Why even waste our time dreaming that way? And I think the reason we think that way is because, see, we forget a very, very fundamental principle when it comes to Christianity. We forget that when God evaluates our potential for his kingdom, he doesn't evaluate us according to the criteria that the world evaluates us by. And because of that, often we underestimate our potential to make a difference in the kingdom of God. And it's because, see, we feel like we don't have what the world says we need to have to make it. We don't feel like we have what the world says we need to have to accomplish a whole lot or to be successful in the world standards. But see that's why in this series we're not looking at the world standard for greatness. We're looking at God's criteria to be used in a great way. And we're not looking at a worldly philosophy. We're looking at a biblical principle that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7. It says this, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance But the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, what you can do, who you know, where you went to school, what kind of family did you come from. But the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, when God evaluates our potential for his kingdom, he's not looking at the things that tend to impress the people on planet earth. He's using a whole different criteria. And we're learning what that criteria for greatness is. And so far, we've learned that God is looking for people who have a willing heart, people who have an available heart. We saw that the first week. And then last week, we saw that God is looking for people with a pure heart. And we discovered that it doesn't mean that you have a perfect heart, it doesn't mean that you have a sinless heart. All of us would be out of luck. To have a pure heart means you have an unmixed heart. It means that you have a heart that lines up with the heart of God. In fact, we learned that God is looking for the person who says, God, all that I have and all that I am is yours. He's looking for the person who's willing to say, God, I'm more interested in what you want than what I want. God is looking for the person who's willing to say, I don't, I, I don't know how, God, is going to happen, but I'm willing to be the who, right? I'm available. God, my heart's in alignment with your heart. Now this weekend, we're going to look at the third characteristic that God says we need to have if we're going to be used greatly by him, and we find it in the life of one of my favorite biblical characters, and one of my favorite stories, one of those that you heard in Sunday school, and maybe you grew up in Baptist church like I did, and they had the little posters on the wall of of Daniel standing in the lion's den with the lion, you know, right beside him, kind of with a big cheesy grin on his face, but uh, we're going to be talking about Daniel, so if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 1, And uh, if you don't have your Bible, if you want to go to the Get Hope, download that app on your smartphone, you can use that, or we'll just put the verses up on the screen. It's past Ezekiel. It's before Matthew. If you don't recognize either one of those, don't even try. Don't even try, okay? Daniel chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of background, set the stage, bring you up to speed. When our story opens in chapter 1, Daniel is about 15 years old. He's about 15 years old. He lives in Jerusalem with all of his family and friends until King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and conquers the city of Jerusalem. You may remember this from school history, 586 B.C. And after defeating the city, King Nebuchadnezzar, he takes the brightest, he takes the best young people of Jerusalem with him back to Babylon. Daniel is one of those young men at the, around the age of 15 or 16 that's taken into captivity. So keep in mind when our story opens, Daniel is located about 800 miles from home in this perverted, decadent culture of Babylon. And if you remember the history of civilization, you know how decadent and perverted that culture was. And King Nebuchadnezzar's plan was he was going to train these young men that he's taken from Jerusalem to be a part of his government. In fact, his goal is to make Babylonians out of these young Jewish men so that they can have a positive impact on the Babylonian empire, the Babylonian culture. But he's got to win them over. So it says in chapter 1 verse 5 that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, so he would do what we, he does what we often do when we want to win somebody over. We take them over to raise and we wine and dine them, right? But immediately understand Daniel has a problem because Daniel knows that if he's eating, if he's being served the best food from the king's table, he knows because he understands Babylonian culture. That the king only ate meat that had already been offered up to idols because they served the best of the idols. And then the king would eat what they served to the idols. And he knew from his Jewish upbringing that it violated the covenant that he had with God. That it went against the law of God that he had grown up with. So Daniel has a predicament. But you'll notice in verse 8 of chapter 1, Daniel makes his decision. It says, but Daniel resolved. The Hebrew word, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word means that he purposed in his heart. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And it's a great story. You can read it. But my point is he resolved. And by the way, it's it's the past tense. Okay. In other words, Daniel made this decision ahead of time. And the decision he made was this. They're taking me to Babylon. I can't do anything about it. I'm a slave in Babylon. I can't do anything about it. But regardless of what I face when I get to Babylon, I am not going to disobey God. Regardless of the situation, I am not going to cross the line. I am not going to sell out. By the way, this is a great lesson for you young people because he made the, he made the decision ahead of time. See, It's too late to make the decision when you're in the backseat of a car and your clothes are halfway off and the windows are all steamed up. Right? It's too late to decide then how you feel about premarital sex. You've got to make that decision ahead of time. Or when you go to the college campus and you're at the frat house and here comes the doobie. It's too too late to decide, "Mm, I wonder how I feel about partaking in illegal drugs. It's too late to make that decision. Daniel made the decision ahead of time. And you know what? God saw that and God's like, wow, 15 years old, character like that, integrity like that. That's a young man that I'm going to be able to use. Well, that sets the scene for the story that we're looking in chapter six. And so... It's now a few years later. Daniel has proven himself. Nebuchadnezzar has died. There's a new king. There's a new king in Babylon. His name is King Darius. And over this period of time, and you can read those chapters on your own, Daniel, because of his skill, because of his talent, because of his hard work, because of his integrity, he has been promoted up the ranks. He's been promoted to the role of commissioner. And that means that he's in charge of the satraps, which is a fancy name for tax collectors. He was in charge of the tax collectors who collected the taxes for the kingdom. In fact, it was Daniel's job to make sure that the amount of taxes collected from the people was accurately reported to the king. So when you get to Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the tax collectors by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That means this. Daniel is getting ready to be promoted to to the number two guy in the most powerful kingdom in the entire world at this time in history. And it says in verse 4, At this the administrators and the satraps, the tax collectors, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. And I think the issue is they didn't like the fact that this outsider, this foreigner is going to have all of this power in their homeland. So they want, they want to get some dirt on Daniel. They want to bring him down. So, you know, they put a tail on him and see where he's going. They check his files. They audit his expense account. They're watching every move he makes. They can't find anything that Daniel is doing wrong. They can't even turn up an unpaid parking ticket, right? And so finally, these men come to the conclusion, we're never gonna find anything to charge Daniel with unless, unless it has something to do with his faith and his God. Unless it has something to do with his beliefs. So they get together and their brains start turning and they come up with a plan and they go see the king. And this is what they tell the king. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors and the governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict And enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned this, I don't know how he figured it out. I don't know if somebody told him. I don't know if he was on the internet, watching CNN, whatever. When he learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed just as he had done before. Now, I understand what's at stake here. Daniel's taken into captivity at the age of 15. He starts out as a slave, but because of his integrity and his abilities and his skills, he's getting ready to be promoted to the number 2 guy. He is getting ready to be handed the keys to the entire kingdom. And he's probably wearing a robe around, you know, the streets of Babylon, you know, says so life is good on the back of it or something, right? And let's be honest. A lot of us if if we were faced with this similar situation, we would probably go into justification mode and we would begin to think think things like, well, you know what, it's obviously, this is a God thing. I mean, God obviously put me in this position for a reason, to impact, to somehow make a difference in this godless culture. And I'm sure now that I've gotten all the way to this point where I'm gonna be the number two guy, God doesn't want me to blow it now. And this is weird that you can't pray. I'll just go home and when I pray, I'll make sure the curtains are pulled really, really tight. Or I'll just go in my bathroom and shut the door to make sure that nobody can see me pray. I won't make a big deal out of it. I'll just pray in private not Daniel. It says he went home and he prayed as he had always prayed. Now, was he being obnoxious? See, Christians can be obnoxious, right? Was he being defiant? Was he just trying to prove a point? No, no. It was because when he was young, he made up his mind that he was going to be obedient. When he was young, he made up his mind, I am going to be a person of integrity. He decided that he belonged to God and he was not going to disobey God even for the sake of success, for the sake of wealth, for the sake of a promotion, even for the sake of comfort and it's because he had given everything he had to God. He says, "God, I'm giving you my future. I'm giving you my life. I am totally available to you." You know what we would say about Daniel? He had a pure unmixed heart. He had a heart that was aligned with God. Well, when you get to verse 11, the trap is sprung. These guys they catch Daniel praying. See, just like they had planned. Verse 12, they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you, not, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Didn't you say that? The king asked her, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be appealed. And they're like, oh, well, we got a little problem. I was walking my little cockapoo this afternoon, and I went by Daniel's apartment. Just happened to look up. Don't even know why I was on that part of town. Courage were wide open. He was praying. And I think it was with the attitude, nanny, 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 you know, right? right? It said when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But see, there's a reason that we're familiar with that saying about the law of the Medes and Persian. It was irrevocable. Once it was in place, it could not be changed. It says verse 16. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, may he rescue you. In other words, he says, it's out of my hands. Can't do anything else about it. I'm counting on your God, Daniel, that I don't even know. Your God that I don't even believe in. I'm counting on your God to come through for you. So Daniel's put into the den. A stone is placed over the mouth of the den. And verse 18 says, the king went home to his palace and climbed into his king-sized bed, but he can't sleep. But you know what I think? I think Daniel snuggled down with one of those lions. I think he was asleep before the king even pulled up covers, right? But the king goes home, gets in his bed. He can't sleep. And he tosses, he turns all night. He's totally worried about Daniel. So it says in verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. Notice how the king's perspective is changing. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, by the way, I would have said, if you will get me out of here first, I will answer all your questions, right? But Daniel just, yeah, made the king live forever. My God sent his angels, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty, The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted up from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Not a mark on him. You know what the king's response was? New rule. This rule was a stupid rule. And whoever came up with this rule is stupid. In fact, if you read the next few verses, he gathered up all the men who talked him into passing this rule. And he threw them in the lion's den. Along with their wives along with their children. And it says the lions devoured them. See, that's old school justice right there. That's tough love right there. We don't see that anymore, right? But then it says in verse 25, the king, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language. Now look at this. Of every language in all the earth. Now don't miss that. This means that Darius is getting ready to issue a decree that is going to impact the entire known world in regards to not his many gods. He was a polytheistic uh, belief system in, in, in Babylon. But to Daniel's God, just to Daniel's God. And this is what he says in verse 26. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. What that means is this. Daniel changed the heart of not one king. Daniel changed the heart of two kings. Now, here's the question. Why was God able to use Daniel in such an incredible way? He was, well, obviously, it's because he was in such an influential position. Wrong. You say, well, I, I guess it's probably because I bet he was good looking. I bet he went to the right schools, came from the right kind of family. Wrong. Because he had all these gifts and abilities, and he was so intelligent. Wrong. Wrong. Understand the reason that God was able to use Daniel in such a significant way was because Daniel had decided ahead of time, regardless of the cost, I will obey God. Regardless of what it costs me, I will take a stand. I am not going to compromise my integrity. I have drawn a line and I am not going to cross it. Now, this is what you understand. That is exactly what God is looking for in you and me. God is looking for men. God's looking for women. God's looking for students that have a passion to obey him. He's looking for men and women and students that just have a passion to live a life of integrity. He's looking for people who will not be bought off. He's looking for people who cannot be bribed. He's looking for people who are willing to say, I know it sounds strange. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's no longer politically correct. I know it's 2016, but I will not sell out. I will not compromise my integrity, and I will not disobey what God has called me to be, and I will not disobey what God has called me to do. And I'm telling you, when you decide to live that way, you become a beacon in the darkness you become a flashing neon sign that cannot be ignored. And eventually, eventually, as people observe your life, you know what's going to happen? Eventually, people are going to ask the burning question. Do you know what the burning question is? Why? Why? Why won't you go there? Why won't you just sign it? Why won't you lie? Why won't you falsify the report? Why won't you exaggerate? Why won't you just stay the night? What's the big deal? And understand, it's at that moment that you have the opportunity that otherwise you would never have. You have the opportunity to say to your friend. You have the opportunity to say to your employer. You have the opportunity to say to your classmate. You have the opportunity to say to your coworker. it's because I love and I serve and I follow the living, true God. That's why. And regardless of what happens to me in this life, he is so real to me, I don't dare compromise. And it's because what I have to lose in this life is nothing compared to what I have to lose by compromising in my relationship with God. Now, let me just be honest with you. We live in a world that is so dark We live in a world that is so screwed up. We live in a world that is so void of absolutes. People in our world don't even know how to handle that kind of conviction. They don't even know how to handle a person who has those kinds of standards. It rocks their world. It makes them so uncomfortable. In fact, if you take a stand, if you refuse to compromise your integrity... If you choose to be obedient to the word of God, it will make them so angry. Angry. Oh, yeah. Everybody's all about free speech until you take a biblical stand. You know, it used to be a time in our culture where you could agree to disagree. Remember those days? Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. And so what do we try to do? We try to love everybody the way we've been loved. We accept everybody the way we've been set. We don't judge. You know, I used to tell people, why would we judge? These aren't my rules. These are God's rules. If you break these rules, no skin off my back, not my rules. My rules would be different if I wrote the Bible. Like rule number one, do not go to Carolina punishable by stoning right there rule number one got out of the way don't grow tomatoes grow tomatoes are gross i'm sure that's what eve partook of in the garden of See, my rules would be different and if you broke my rules then i'd be upset these aren't my rules these are god's rules so why would i be angry at you for breaking god's rules so i can love you regardless i can i I can accept you regardless i'm not going to judge you right but i got to tell you we live in a culture now it's not enough to agree to disagree anymore it's not enough that you're like, hey, I'll love you. I'll accept you. I don't judge you. It's your life, you know, right? Because they, what society wants us is we want, they want us to agree with them. They want us to say that we condone it. They want us to say that we embrace what they believe, right? Do you know one of our small group leaders emailed us this week, 14-year-old girl, one of our st- student ministry small group, she said, hey, since we've legalized same-sex, same-sex marriage in our country, does that mean we have to rewrite the Bible? See, you know what? That's what culture wants. That's what they want. You know, they want us to say, hey, you know what? We're wrong. You're right. God's wrong. Bible's wrong. Everybody do what they feel. Let's just love everybody. You're right. We're wrong. But I'm going to tell you something. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, and you take a stand, I dare you. You may just get drawn into the, hey, you're a Christian, what do you think about this? If you give a biblical response, a biblical response, you'll end up being called something that will probably have, you know, phobe on the end of it, right? Right. Because, see, understand from the culture we live in now, we're the problem. Those of us who are committed to biblical principles, we're the ones with the issues, we're the ones that are out of step. And yet, from our perspective, it's like, you know, I didn't write this stuff. I just, I, just, I just try to obey it, right? But I will tell you this. If you choose to be a person of integrity, God will use you. You know why? It's because light cannot be ignored in the darkness. And at the end of the day, that's what God's called us to do. He said, hey, I want, I want you to be a light. And if you decide to be a light, I'm not saying be obnoxious, but if you just to say, if you decide you take a stand, there's gonna be conflict, and you're gonna make some enemies, and you're gonna be misunderstood. It's because you can't bring light and darkness together without there being conflict. And you'll probably lose some promotions. And you might miss a raise or two. And you might miss out on some friendships and, and you might lose some opportunities. But I tell you, if the Bible is clear about anything, it's this, when we choose to stand on God's side, we're always the winners in the end. We're always the winners. But when we compromise our integrity for the sake of our finances or for the sake of a relationship or for the sake of a promotion, or we just don't want to rock the boat, right? We don't want to make them feel guilty. We always look back with regret. Because God's looking for people, men, women, and students, to impact our cities. He's looking for men, women, and students to impact this world, to impact this nation. In fact, if the story of Daniel teaches us anything, it teaches us That God can take people in lowly positions. Remember, Daniel was just a 15 year old kid. He can take people in lowly positions and raise them up to be used in incredible ways. But you got to understand, He is looking for people with integrity. He is looking for people with a passion to obey Him no matter what. Understand, see, that's why God put you in that job, right? That's why God had you find that roommate. That's why God brought you to the triangle. That's why God transferred that person into your office is to be light in the darkness. And the only way that people are going to know that you're a light is if you act like a light. And do you know what a, do you know what a light act like, acts like? It acts like the opposite of darkness. That's what it acts like. It draws a line. It sets a standard. And the darker the environment, the brighter the light shines. And the less able people are to ignore it because it stands in such contrast to this dark world that we're living in. You see, that's why God isn't nearly as interested in our talents and our abilities as he is in our obedience and our integrity. Because see, our gifts and our talents, our abilities, those are the kind of things that allow us to make a big splash in the world. But I got to tell you, if there isn't a commitment to a lifestyle of obedience and integrity, and you really see this in the ministry, if there isn't a commitment to a lifestyle of obedience and integrity, it will not last for the long haul. And that's why God is looking for people like Daniel. See, God's looking for people he can use for the long haul. See, He's looking for people he can use over a lifetime. I mean, think about Daniel. He impacted two kings and two dynasties in his lifetime. And in the same way, God has called us to have a lifetime of impact. But if it's going to happen, it's going to require us to do what Daniel did, we have to resolve, we have to decide that we're not going to compromise, regardless of what's at stake. We have to resolve that our integrity and our obedience to God that it is more important than anything else in life. And people don't think that way anymore. By the way, do you know what hangs in the balance of you choosing whether or not to be obedient? Do you know what hangs in the balance? You don't know. That's, that, that's, that, that's, just, that's what makes it such a compelling principle. You don't know. You don't know what hangs in the balance. All Daniel knew was, hey, I can't eat that stuff, so I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to stop praying to God just because somebody told me I couldn't pray to God. Right? He had no idea that God was going to somehow use that obedience to change two kings. He was just doing what he knew was the right thing. He was just being obedient. And so when faced with the call to be obedient... We don't know what hangs in the balance. We don't know know who hangs in the balance because we don't know what God wants to do through us. But I'll tell you this, I don't think any of us want to get to the end of our lives and discover that God wanted to do some incredible stuff in our lives if we'd just been obedient, if we had just taken a stand, if we had just been people of integrity. I mean, think about some of you where you work. You absolutely refuse to address and clean up some of the small sins, some of, some of the small stuff in your life that impacts your light. I mean, maybe you just use terrible language. You are drop of the F bomb all over the place, right? And every time the guys go to the strip club, you're right there with them, right? And at the Christmas party, you're the one that smashed that they have to get a taxi to get home, right? It's kind of hard to share your light, right? When that's your reputation, they're thinking, good gracious, you're, you're worse than we are, right? But yet you have no idea what God could do in and through your life if you would just deal with some of the small sins in your life, if you you would just set some standards. Like, no, guys, I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't do that. If you just refuse to compromise. Or maybe you're a parent and you want your children to grow up and love God and follow God, and you want them to avoid some of the mistakes you made in high school. You want them to avoid some of the mistakes you made in college, and yet there are some habits in your life that are in such conflict with the values that you talk with your kid about. And they're young, yeah, they're young, but you know what? They're beginning to, they're beginning to catch on. That what dad says and what dad actually does, well, that's different. So you talk to children, don't ever lie to us. Be a person of integrity. But they hear you on the phone telling your boss you're sick and you won't be able to be into work. And then they see you put your golf clubs in the trunk of the car and head for the country club. Like, mm. Or you warn them about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. And every once in a while they pass through the family room on the way to bed and you're plastered and passed out. And they're like, hmm. you know what's at stake? Your potential to reach your children is at stake because of the sin in your life, your lack of integrity. And I'm telling you, the biggest lie we buy into is that the only consequence to our sin is the consequence to us. What do we say? I'm just hurting myself. That's a lie. When you sin, you have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what's at stake. Hey, did you guys know God created sex? It's awesome. But he created it with some very specific guidelines. It's between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. Is it. A man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. Anything outside of that, you know what the Bible calls it? Immorality. You've heard that, right? This is old school stuff, Right? That means that if you're a girl and a boy outside of marriage, immorality. If you're a man and a man, if you're a girl and a girl, Bible calls it immorality. Nobody likes that, right? But here's the thing. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you have a same-sex attraction. Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe it's heterosexual. But you know what? God brings you across the path of a young person like you. You fall in love with them. You're afraid you're going to lose them, so you compromise and yet, maybe God brought them into your life because you were going to be the person that was going to bring the light and lead them into a relationship with God. But because you dropped your standard and compromised. How do you then stand there and say, you know, let me tell you how much I love God and how committed I am to Him. And I just want to be obedient. You can't do it. You've lost your opportunity to be light. Now, I'm going to tell you something. People won't tell you anymore. But it's better to live a life of celibacy. Than to live a life of disobedience. You don't know what's at stake. You know what God says? I'll tell you what's at stake. Your potential to be used by me in the life of your friends, that's what's at stake. To be used in the life of your family, that's what's at stake. Your potential for me to use you in the life of your coworkers, that's what's at stake. And because It's because God uses average men and women and students who live a lifestyle that's going to bring honor and glory to Him. Remember a few weeks ago we showed you the video of Matt and... And, uh, Shannon, the models, he was the Abercrombie and Fitch model. That guy used to model with Ellie McPherson. You wouldn't believe all the, all the model shoots he was in. And she was on America's next top model, but she lost because she wouldn't pose partially nude. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, she follows me on Twitter and you know, I, I, I'm a nobody on Twitter. I got like 3000 followers, but she's got over 17,000 followers. So I'm like, I'm going to see what she's, she's tweeting or whatever it's called. Right. And, uh, She's not, she's not tweeting out, you know, like uh, makeup tips. In fact, let me, show you, let me show you what she's tweeting. Who cares if other Christians are doing it? I don't know if this is legal or not, by the way, but she was here last service, and I haven't heard from her lawyer yet. <laughs> Who cares if other Christians are doing it? What does God say about it? He sets the standards. Look at this next one. God loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to grow in your faith so you can become more like him. You go back to her video. Remember when they said you're, you're going to get voted off the show because you wouldn't pose partially nude? And then at the end she said, nothing's worth selling out for. I saw it as a test. God was giving me a test and I just wanted to pass the test. You know what that means? That means her integrity gave her an opportunity to be the light. And now some of the people that follow her because she follows me, follow me. And I can tell these aren't people that probably, you know, they would fall outside the parameter of what I would say would be a godly lifestyle. But she's, she's been like, do, do you know why? Do you know why? You can't be a light in this dark world without people taking notice. And eventually, if they watch long enough, they're going to see the quality of your life. And eventually, somebody's going to say, tell me why. Tell me why you're different. You know what God is looking for? He's looking for men and women and students who have made up their mind. I'm just not going to compromise. And I'm telling you, when that becomes the driving force of your life, God will use you in incredible ways. Because you know what? In our society, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Actually, you're going to stick out like a bright light in a dark world. But yet, at the same time, there's, there's something attractive and winsome about you. You know, you're not a jerk. You're not judging people. You love people. You accept people. You're living, you're being a person of grace. And because of that, God's going to use you. So, what do you want God to use you to do? Who do you want God to use you to reach? I'm telling you, your potential hinges on your ability to make a few decisions about a few habits, a few relationships maybe a few weekend activities. But I'm telling you, it can make all the difference between what God is able to do and he's willing to do through your life. Father, thank you. Thank you. Not an easy message. Especially in this culture. Good gracious. We bought into the lie that everybody's just supposed to be happy. And that life's supposed to be fair. Fair. And somehow as Christians, we've bought into the lie that somehow we're supposed to make sure that that happens. But that's not the life you called us to. You called us to be light in the darkness. But most of us, we're so messed up, we're so full of compromise, we got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, that no one even knows that we're even a follower of Jesus Christ, and even if it does come up, that's... They almost laugh at us because their life is actually more moral than ours. Sometimes, Father, help us to change that tide, so that you can change our neighborhoods, you can change our cities, you can change our nation. You could use us to change the world. Help us to be like Daniel. In your name we pray. Amen. Before I let you go, I want to read this, and I just I want to read it because I want to make sure it comes across, across the right way. It's no secret that there's a lot of pain, hurt, confusion, hate, and anger taking place in the world right now, particularly as it relates to issues with law enforcement and members of the African-American community. Here at HOPE, we have members that are in law enforcement. We also have members that are part of the African-American community. And as a church, we want them all to know that we are here for them, here to help comfort them, help provide them with clarity, help them heal however we can. But even beyond that, as the church we have a responsibility to help lead efforts that provide healing and reconciliation to hurting and broken people and damaged relationships throughout society. And if the church doesn't lead these efforts, I don't believe we will ever get the proper results as God intended. So immediately following the 1115 service on Sunday at the Raleigh campus, we will have officers from throughout the triangle. We actually have several police chiefs from all the all the different squads around, several officers who will be here to join us to share thoughts on improving race relations and overall community relations and taking questions from the audience. So at one o'clock at the Raleigh campus, whatever campus you're at, if you can make your way here, we're gonna be hosting this. We're gonna be a part of it. We are trying to figure out as a church how we can be a part of the solution because see, that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to be light.